You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to our Energy Insiders podcast. This week, how much solar? How much battery storage? How much EVs? And what does the future of the grid look like? Uh, we're going to be joined by a special guest today, but joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK. How are you, David? I'm well, thanks, Giles. And hello to our listeners and hello to our special guest, Richard Gross, CEO of Ausgrid. Yes, Richard. Look, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Um, great pleasure to have you on our podcast. Yes, good morning, everyone, and it's a pleasure to be there. Look, the reason I guess we um, we asked you to to join us for the podcast was your announcement last week about um, a deal with Sydney City Council. And what's interesting about this, it actually came up from a tender you um, we wrote about last November. But what Osgrid seems to want to do, it wants to put in more solar um, and presumably a bit more battery storage because it wants to avoid um, having to make more investments and in upgrading its network. Um, you don't have enough solar. Why do you want more? <laughs> Thanks, Giles. Look, look, it's the demand management and introducing solar and batteries and other new technologies are really exciting for, for us at Osgrid and us for our grid because it allows all the customers to actually uh, be much more empowered and actually control their loads much better. Um, so that's a real customer benefit. But for the grid itself, it allows us to uh, ensure that we have other options rather than just upgrading or building new terminal stations. We can actually use other mechanisms to manage the demand. And that's what batteries and that's what decentralised generation like solar provides. So it's a good opportunity. So I think you know we're pretty excited by the, uh, the fund we announced. And as you recall, it was 1.5 million uh, and with Sydney of Sydney, uh, City of Sydney coming in with that 750k, so it's 2.25 mil, of which we're offering and gone out to tender and seeking others to come in and and with permanent demand management opportunities, and we're happy to provide that money to actually incentivise that. So why do you need to provide an extra incentive then for rooftop solar? Um, I mean, is it because people have been living in apartments and people there's a lot of industrial offices there and they just simply haven't thought about it and just need an extra incentive? Um, and I, I guess it's an interesting idea that, um, that solar can actually benefit the grid and benefit all customers because I think that sometimes gets lost in the criticism of that t- technology. Yes, yeah, like it's solar and batteries and other ones. So it's not just rooftop solar, it's any demand management that gives us a permanent reduction in our demand that's putting on the grid. Permanent reductions in demand allow us to optimise and reduce the costs on the overall operation of the grid. So if solar can come forward and do that, and we're, you know, we're effectively doing a beauty parade. So we've gone to tender and those are coming forward with the, the opportunities and we'll pick the best ones and support those ones that will give us the best benefits, i.e. the best reductions of demand for our grid. So tell me about what, what your sort of forecast is. I think your um, latest stakeholder consultation document talks about a doubling of solar um, installations in your grid over the next 10 years. And you're also predicting um, a greater uptake of battery storage. I think you've got 1,500 installations within your network at the moment. It looks like you're expecting about 20,000 over the next 10 years and maybe you're, you're thinking of more. And can you give me just some sort of colour about electric vehicles as well? 
Yeah, like in our grid, Ausgrid, we're the biggest distribution business in the national electricity market. We have, we service about 1.7 million households are uh, in the Sydney and the Central Coast and the Upper Hunter region. So it, there's about a 7% penetration of solar panels in our area at this point. And we think with more reductions in costs uh, and obviously the, the arbitraging of the price of energy, we expect that to you know, significantly increase in the next five to 10 years. Same with batteries. We think with the, the reducing of the cost, you know, with the Tesla batteries and other ones, reducing those costs, they're much more affordable. They actually look better. They actually can have them in your houses and things like that. So we see that, again, significantly increasing. And the electric vehicles is really exciting for us because it, it's, I, th I think, and sort of our vision would be that, that the, to re get the carbon reductions and uh, the actual energy efficiencies, electric vehicles deliver that. Uh, over time, as the fleet changes, you know, it'll be a gradual change, but it will be a significant change that occurs. And I think when you couple that with things like uh, carless drivers and those sorts of things, electric vehicles are really the way of the future. If you look at what's happening in other parts of the world, there's huge penetration of electric vehicles. So I think it's going to happen, and that's just another uh, business and another opportunity for making sure that the grid is delivering those services and that'll be delivering the charging stations for electric vehicles. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to let David ask a question um, very shortly. In fact, just there, but I'd just like to point out, I think we're looking for driverless cars, not um, carless drivers. But um... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> David, off you go. I, you really got me scared now with all these people wandering around. <laughs> I think they're called pedestrians, actually. <laughs> Hi, Richard. It's interesting to hear that there's only 7% penetration of solar in the Ausgrid network, which I think would be one of the lowest uh, and certainly yet on probably on average one of the um, uh, networks most capable of, uh, you know, with sunlight and all that of supporting a lot more solar. So I actually think it's a fairly disappointing performance and fairly consistent with the whole of New South Wales. Uh, but I just wanted to look at the uh, broader picture of Ausgrid. Uh, you mentioned the couple of million for this solar initiative, but I guess that comes in the context of, uh, you know, like one and a half billion dollars of revenue a year uh, that you're looking for in your next uh, statement and, and, and a load of about, what, 25 terawatts. Within that, could, could you maybe just indicate how many uh, like t uh, communicating meters, what, what the sort of, which I think is the basic building block of the network of the future, how many, what's the penetration rate of communicating meters within Ausgrid? Yeah, and I'll just, can I just comment also on the 7% the penetration of uh, PV? Like Ausgrid, we are the densest network in Australia. You look at for solar panels and all the apartment blocks and in the CBD. After so, city power, surely. Well, yeah, but where if you take it, sort of the CBD of Sydney is much more dense, actually, than the city power density of Melbourne. So we are akin to a New York or a London. Um, we, if you just look around it at Sydney, it has much more uh, dense high rise than than a, a a Melbourne or surrounds. So. It's, that's the first issue. Second issue is because if you look at the actual uh, apartment living in Sydney, it's, so we have many more people who rent in apartments than other cities. 
and that the business model doesn't quite work for solar when in the renting at the moment. That's one of the things that needs to be addressed going forward. And the third issue, I suppose, is just the old buildings and the overlays uh, and therefore getting the approval. So all those things have contributed to a less penetration of solar in our patch. Um, in, in terms of uh, the, our overall programs uh, with smart meters, so you, be, you recall that the new reforms, the power of choice reforms effectively mean that the retailer is the one that chooses where the smart meter goes in. So it's as of December 1 last year, all new and replacement meters are smart meters and then customers can elect to have a smart meter through their retailer. We as a business are excited by the growth in smart meters because we've actually acquired the active stream business from AGL. So we're actively out there putting in smart meters. We like you, David, believe that the uh, information and the communications associated with metering uh, are a real opportunity to go forward and a real method to actually transform the grid and actually both behind and in front of the meter. So it's exciting stuff and we're a big part of that. And, and, but so still, what is the statistic? How, what is the penetration rate? Uh, it's, I think it's about, I need to check for sure, but I think we have about 250,000 meters that are of smart, sort of semi-smart, I'll say. They're not on full communication. So we're, yeah, not because, like, we're not like Victoria, for example, where there was a mandated rollout. No, no, I understand that absolutely completely. And I think Ausgrid was in fact initially put in place interval meters, but they still had to be manually read. Correct. And I know, I notice when I look at your load of 25 terawatt hours, uh, only about six terawatt hours is actually not interval priced, uh, according to some of the statistics I look at. But maybe I'm, I'm reading that wrong. I, I just quickly wanted to move on if, uh, and talk about your CapEx program, which I think you're proposing about $6 billion over five years, uh, uh, sorry, uh, $3.3 billion, excuse me, $600 million a year. Yeah. And 90% and of that is, only 10% of that is on growth, if I can put it that way. And 90% of that is actually on maintenance of the network. And you talk about the energy density, uh, Osgrid being one of the highest, uh, most dense networks, and yet your tariff rates should be lower, shouldn't they, for households if the network is dense because uh, it kind of requires less wires and poles. So this is a fairly broad question, but my point is if 90% of the capex is maintenance, is there any underlying basis for changing the uh, uh, tariff structure, which you're also talking about. I mean, most of the money is actually being spent on maintaining the network that's already there. Uh, uh, there's no new investment, not really. And, and, and so what does it matter how you price or charge customers? It's, it's basically the CapEx and the OpEx is entirely fixed, no matter how you charge them. Yeah, like there's a few questions in there, David. So they, <laughs> they're taking their CapEx program. So our CapEx program going forward, uh, it's around the 3.2, 3.3 billion over the period. And yes, there's a small component of that, as you said, around 10% associated with uh, augmenting the network for load growth. And that really is in specific areas. If you look around the the new the railway line out to the airport, Alexandria and those spots, there's massive growth there. So there's low growth there, and then you look at the data centres that are coming into Sydney. They suck up a lot of load, so there's low growth around where they're located. 
the remaining part of our capital is not all, as you call, maintenance. It's a big chunk of it is 75% is in replacement capex. The other capex is your IT and support systems. And we do have a bit, uh, a, a property type capex and fleet and those sorts of things as well. So yes, we are mainly replacing uh, our assets and we're replacing our assets uh, because they're old, because they're at the end of their life, because they need to be replaced, otherwise they'll, they'll uh, fail and then you'll have significant outages in the CBD and surrounds. We have a significant asset base uh, which, uh, which is old and therefore it needs to be replaced, say much more than many other businesses around Australia. Your other question was around the pricing and, and, and tariffs. It's important that our pricing uh, actually reflects the, the uh, costs that, that are incurred within our network. So for example, most of our costs on the network are all associated with uh, augmenting the network for the peak uh, to meet that peak demand. You know those hot summer days when everyone turns their air conditioner on. But 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 we've just decided that ninety percent of the the, the, the costs uh, going. I mean the investment is ninety percent not related to augmentation, if I can put it that way. And when I look at your actual opex and break it down, I, I don't want to get too bogged down on this, but you know the biggest single category is management, which is hardly going to change. Um, <laughs> whether whether load increases or reduces. Yeah, but you're talking it, it, when you're replacing your capex, you still got to look at whether you replace it at the same size or whether you replace it to a smaller demand level. So you asked, you are still looking at not just replacing one for one. You look at what up, what is the future demand for your network? Do you need to replace it to the same size, or is there a, a step down that you could do, or a more optimal way of doing it? So you still have to consider demand, even in your replacement capex. Yeah, I, 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 I guess I, I get that. Um, and it's just that it seems to me that most of the network investment and the capital base, which makes up, I mean, the return on capital makes up 60% or two thirds broadly of the revenue that you get. And most of that uh, uh, was determined, uh, that uh, investment was determined long ago. And the pricing structure, I would argue the tariff structure is totally irrelevant. And, and probably can't drive demand. But I guess that brings me to the bigger question that as I look forward... Can I just comment on that? Yeah, sure, like sure. The pricing, pricing structure is not irrelevant. Um, the, the, the pricing structure should reflect its use by customers and by uh, consumers. So to the extent that a customer is using the network at its peak, they're actually getting the benefit of the network while in its peak time, which our peak is a summer peak, from about four to seven, seven or eight p.m. on a on a weeknight night. That's so their pricing structure should reflect that. So that's what that's what drives the overall cost for my grid. So it's in short, it's important that that happens. So if you have a pricing structure that doesn't reflect that, and hypothetically, if you have a lot of users that are using um, using the grid at the time of peak and not using it the other ones and it's all on a, all on a volume charge that they're actually not contributing to what they actually impose in costs on the grid and so do you think so it, it should be the customer's peak or the or the or the network peak uh it's it's the network peak because that's what's driving the cost and that's a coincident demand but the customer so has no control over when the network peak is they only have control over their own demand and exactly, and that's where I'm going. The pricing structure should be able to reflect where the network peak is 
and therefore encourage customers to make the choices knowing the cost they're imposing on the grid. I won't. So that yeah. that's a that's a good way to think about it. It's no different than your telco pricing or anything, your capacity pricing associated with internet and those sorts of issues. It's a very similar concept. And and when I look at the um, your forecast tariff schedule that you were looking for essentially has, I guess, small nominal revenue increases over the forecast five years. Is, is that right? Uh, it, yes, but what what we're saying is that we think our prices, and these are all forecasts and it's got to go through a, a lot more processes with the regulator, etc. But we're forecasting that there'll be about a four to five percent price reduction uh, on the beginning of two thousand of sort of one July 19, uh, 2019, and then it's a CPI increase going forward. So we're very keen to give whatever reduction we can up front, and, and, and therefore and, just roll forward with CPI. Yeah, indeed, and and that would still leave, in my opinion, network bills running at about forty five to fifty percent of household tariffs and in my opinion, make it very difficult to get significant reductions in the overall electricity price. There's perhaps not much you can do about that, but I'm going to hand back to Giles in just a second after this one last question, which is talking about the rate of return guideline exercise that the AER is going through at the moment. And I guess this will forever remain controversial, uh, but it does seem to me that a 6.5% market risk premium I worked in stock markets for for 30 years and I would struggle to have any ever found anyone outside of a regulated utility owner who, who believes that the market risk premium is is 6.5%. I mean I've heard numbers from 4.5% up to about 6 but very little support historically for 6.5%. I just wondered what what your thoughts about that were. Uh look you're right. The rate of return guideline is uh, an issue that's being developed through the AER and will be feeding into those processes with all the other experts. And you can't just look at any one parameter and you've sort of pulled out a one of the CAPM parameters to work out a whack. You'd sit there and go, well, in, in the market, how many people have a, a, an equity beta or a, a sort of overall risk that is quite low like a utility and you're applying that to the market risk premium to get an overall return. So I think you've got to look at it in a oh, I, I did do that. But I mean, actually, if you look at it, just finish on that, in the Australian share market's fairly unusual in that because of the mining companies, virtually every industrial company will have a beta, observed beta of less than, less than one. And I've, uh, historical exercises I've done on the betas of listed network companies, and there aren't very many of them anymore, uh, sometimes show it down around 0.4 or 0.5. So I personally think 0.7 is fairly generous, but let us I'll hand it back to Charles. Yeah, just on that, that's inconsistent with the way our analysis, where we think 0.7 is a fair range for the equity beta. Richard, just getting back to sort of the big picture um, and this sort of whole transition and the way Australia, is Australia prepared for this transition? I mean, you talked about the uptake of battery storage, you talked about the uptake of electric vehicles. Um, you were suggesting that these could be gradual, but there's a lot of analysts out there who who suggest the take-up could actually be quite quick because once we reach that pivot point on the economics, then um, why would you buy a petrol car um, for the future? Do you think that um, your company and the grid in general is prepared or able, going to be able to cope with a rapid uptake um, of these technologies? Uh, look, again, there's a couple of questions in there. In terms of, 
is, a, is my grid or grids as a whole, are they really prepared for the change in all these new technologies? And, and I think, well, we're doing a lot of work, but are we fully there? No. Um, there's more work to be done and there's more opportunities to, to work through. And, and some of the things are a bit uncertain as to how they will roll out. You know, whether the batteries are more community batteries or they're household batteries or even they become utility level batteries that sit next to wind farms. So all those sorts of issues need to be resolved and then you have to resolve all the engineering stuff about having bi-directional flow of your electricity at, at a greater volume, which brings in a whole heap of engineering and electrical engineering issues of fault rates and harmonics and those sorts of issues. Yeah. So, so they, they need to be sorted out. And I think there's also the, the overall uh, environment, the regulatory and legislative environment that we have, that I think is evolving with these changes. So is it there now? No. Um, but I think over time it will get closer and it will evolve when we have a greater understanding of where things are at. In terms, terms of the actual uptake and how rapid it would be, um, I'm not an expert on these areas, but you look at to actually change the fleet over for Australia. I think the average age of Australian cars is 10 years or something, 10 to 11 years. I'm right on the average. So, And I'm waiting for my electric vehicle. I've got a few on. <laughs> So you've got to think, you know, you are changing around 10%, you know, at absolute max uh, per year. Uh, and that's not probably the case. So it is, a, it is, even when the electric vehicles get to the price point that they are, you've still got that overall uh, lag time before you change the whole fleet. Richard, Richard, um, can I just in there? Can I just ask about peer-to-peer -peer trading? Um, you know, which is a topic that comes up. Do, do you have any um, experiments running on within the Osgrid network to see how that might impact your business, both technically and economically? Uh, look, we don't have any live experiments. We're certainly looking at those sorts of opportunities. Like we think uh, that peer-to-peer -peer trading is going to be part of the the new world. Mum and Dad will be trading with Mum and Dad next door, and vice versa. We believe the grid and Ausgrid has the is the facilitator of that. So we need to get those local system operation plans in place, the local system operators for the networks, such that can facilitate all that. That's one of the real exciting things that I think where the grid's going to go. It's it's part of enabling all that customer empowerment and peer-to-peer -peer trading. And I guess that's the sort of the push and pull of some of the technology and the technology cost because you do have all these possibilities, you know, the, the sharing, the peer-to-peer -peer trading, the electric vehicles and the battery storage and how they can play a role in providing grid services and, um, and what have you. At the same time, you've got the falling cost of these technologies. And I think um, your um, South Australian Power Networks um, had an estimate um, last year about the cost of solar and storage being almost just half the cost of grid-based grid power. Um, that was according to their estimate. They thought that would happen around about 2020. And I think the CSIRO and Electric Electricity Networks Association report of two years ago warned about the risk of grid defection. I'm, I'm wondering if that's still a live issue with you um, because it is a case that we do have very high electricity prices. Now that's because of networks, it's because of wholesale price rises have just jumped recently, so too with retail margins. Um, yet we're seeing a falling cost of solar and we are seeing and we're gonna see a falling cost of battery storage. So how do you make sure that you can actually deliver these services and not having people just getting sick of the high prices and deciding that they've got a better option with their own technology? Yeah, and look, and that's a good question in that we, 
it's important that the, the services we offer are affordable, so that's why we're out trying to look at all these demand management and other opportunities to ensure that the grid doesn't increase its prices uh, and, and cause problems. The other issue, I suppose, with defection from the grid, uh, we think that it's not... Um, the, the, sorry, I should say, we think the grid offers more opportunities in that world and therefore defection is less likely. And the opportunities are that you have a whole heap of generation, whether it be solar or something else, uh, you're going to generate much more than you consume because you've got to actually, in a solar case, have about five or six days of generation because of the cloudy days and what happens in the winter. So because of that, you will want to be able to sell that excess power and that goes to the peer-to-trading, the peer-to-peer trading and those sorts of issues. So really it's the, the defection is less likely, it's more that the grid will become and be used differently in the future in that it will facilitate all that and will actually complement the distributed generation, whether it be solar battery or other things. I, I notice you've got a forecast that demand will increase in your five-year plan, although I, I suspect it was down this summer by about a, a gigawatt. Do you think total energy going through the network will go up over the next five years? Uh, look, our forecast for demand are a slight increase in demand, and that's a function of those data centres and those growth areas that occur. Um, the overall, and if you look at our grid, we had our peak demand that occurred in our grid just 12 months ago. So it's the biggest peak ever. So that's a function of the, there is still growth occurring. We've still got customer number growth, et cetera. In terms of consumption going through the grid, we see that uh, at best being flat, probably declining. And, and, and so with a, well, that's interesting. I mean, that gives, because you have a revenue cap and so, <laughs> On that basis, the if it if your revenue goes up and and, and energy go is flat one way or another, uh, the, the dollars per unit of energy will probably have to go up. But uh, however yeah. you count and, and David, that's that's the whole reason for the demand management focusing on if our peak demand is still going up, that means we still have to be, build a network to meet the peak. And as you rightly said, the big component of our costs are the capex and the return on and off of that. So it's important that we manage that to keep those prices affordable. Absolutely. Look, and look I'm running out of time. Oh. That's okay. Well, look, um, Richard, um, uh, we, we, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Just very quickly before we wrap up, um, just about the um, some of the policy issues. We've seen the NEG consultation paper, and um, look, there's a lot of concerns about it, both from large and small retailers and a whole bunch of other people. Mainly the complexity of it, whether it's really needed, um, and some of its potential impact on prices. Do you have a, has Osgood made a submission on this, and do you have a personal view of where it needs to head? Uh, look, we have made a submission on the NEG, and, and we, we're, we're supportive of um, getting some policy certainty uh, across the whole sector. It's important for investment and decision-making going forward, and, the, and we're supportive of uh, a focus on affordability, sustainability, you know, the trilemma, uh, and, and the uh, carbon emission and targets as well. So. Bringing all that together, we're supportive. We also recognise there's more detail to be done uh, on on the neg. Okay, mm -hmm. well, we'll, we'll leave it there. We do understand you have to go, so I'd like to thank you for joining us, um, David. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'd like to add my thanks, Richard, too. I appreciate Osgrid's one of the biggest uh, electricity network providers, uh, electricity business in the country, and uh, there's a lot to talk about. And I thank you very much for your time.
Thanks, David. Thanks, Charles. And that was Richard Gross, the CEO of Osgrid, um, joining us um, for this podcast. And um, just before we catch up with the, um, the weekly news, um, David, I'd just like to thank um, our sponsors, as usual, Sol- Solaray Energy and Watt Watches. Um, what took out? Well, we both got um, we got both got called into Snowy Hydro last week for a um, for a briefing. Yes, look, it was great talking to Richard. I, I don't think people appreciate. We don't hear much about Osgrid and the networks in the way that we hear about generation all the time. But they're fifty percent of the bills, and it's well worth understanding their drivers. Uh, but back on the big topics that do interest people, uh, I guess Snowy. Uh, yes, we went in to see. We 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 heard Snowy's uh, version of the story. Uh, uh, and what a great and interesting story it is. But what did you make of it? Oh, look, it was interesting that they were very keen to point out that um, that um, Snowy Hydro... Uh, well, we've made the point before that Snowy Hydro doesn't actually make sense unless there's more wind and solar and you've got a majority of renewables on the grid because otherwise you're simply sort of using coal to push, um, to push water up the hill. They wanted to make the point that um, having Snowy Hydro would actually increase the uptake of wind and solar and accelerate that transition because they would want to contract with wind and solar farms um, because it would be cheaper to contract wind and solar farms at times of excess um, production um, than um, having a contract with the coal coal plants and they saw no interest in that so that was their take look i'm i'm really interested to see what their detailed economic analysis is when that does come out at the end of the year um to see um how much charles, uh, charles it made me laugh you know a couple of things i watched they had uh, ian higgins from the australian and uh, maybe i shouldn't make fun about this but you know he wanted to talk about redfish you know and how that was an environmental issue if that's the most important thing you can think find to think say about snowy it's a bit of a worry to me but uh uh, what I learned from that meeting was a couple of things. Yes, you're right. Uh, Snowy and everyone I understand, Snowy only makes sense in the in, in a world of more renewables. And so, what's the federal government doing that with the one hand, and on the other hand, saying putting the neg commitments to the minimum Paris level? The second thing I learned from it is that they're going to be selling a lot of caps, and they're hoping to get 40% of their revenue out of that, those $300 a megawatt hour caps, and that means they need uh, less of this um, uh, straight out energy selling. Uh, arbitrage and and the third thing I learnt, which you pointed out in your art, excellent article, was that they're going to be um, looking to uh, sponsor 800 megawatts more of renewables over the next uh, two or three years. But that's not the only thing. Snowy's going to be a very busy company, isn't it? It's going to be a very busy company, yeah. And look, and you are so right to point out this sort of this uh, this apparent sort of discrepancy between. Um, wanting to build snowy um, hydro and the government intervention in that market um, on the basis that it's um, we're going to change, change over to renewables grid and yet we've got the National Energy Guarantee proposal which um, seems to deem otherwise. And um, it's been interesting seeing the feedback, as I mentioned um, before Richard signed off, that um, the feedback from basically all and sundry, in fact, apart from the Business Council of Australia and uh, possibly the Energy Supply Council, I couldn't think of... Um, I couldn't find very many people who thought that the NEG, as proposed, um, makes sense. Although I do note that Kerry Schott has been in um, the Murdoch press this morning, so I'm saying, well, not particularly bothered by those criticisms. So it's going to be interesting to see what's presented at the COAG meeting in just a few weeks' time. Yeah, well, that's where we'll have to wind it up. But no doubt Kerry uh, Schott and Claire Savage are going to argue their case right to the end, uh, put, put a lot of time and effort into it. Uh, really, the federal government will be supportive of COAG. Um, uh, we'll have to see who's representing the South Australian government, but we should, we'll have to wind it up here, but otherwise we'll be talking for another hour. Well, look, I mean, and why not? Why not? Yeah, but let's wind it up. And um, fingers crossed for the South Australian um, election this Saturday. It's going to be very, very interesting. 
Um, I think even sports bets got confused and it's got its bidding thing all over the place. So I guess we'll wake up on Sunday and maybe have an answer or maybe waiting to see who can form a minority government with Nick Xenophon, which well, will be well, challenging in, in itself. Maybe with Nick's, Nick's party, but I'm not quite convinced it's going to be Nick himself uh, in Parliament uh, there. He sounded a bit depressed on, on radio this morning. Well, maybe he'll do a Silvio Berlusconi and try to pull the strings from the background. Who knows? Okay, David, thanks very much. And look, um, thanks again for, to our listeners. Um, please leave a review um, on your favourite podcast platform and we'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.